We can talk about anything you want as Jake wants his Welcome to Jay Flaunts Ignorance, episode 34. Apparently what we're doing this week is we're going to play excerpts of another podcast. <laughs> this, is the, <laughs> this is a podcast called Pitchfork Economics, and I've listened to a jillion episodes of this thing, and I highly recommend it. And uh, the specific episode that we're uh, going to be playing parts of and then reacting to it is, what's the, can you read the? Yep. It is called uh, Debunking Deficit Myths with Stephanie Kelton. Ah, so we'll link to podcast or sorry, Pitchfork Economics, and we'll link to this specific episode, and we'll link to that author, and we'll link to her book. And do you have you have like timestamps saved up that you want to? Well, in? see, that's the thing. So, like, there wasn't really a lot that I was thinking that we could like really uh, uh, play out loud, but there was a couple instances which I thought would be good. Sub subject material if sure. you wanted to you know just play it so i do have some time stamps for some other things uh but not really the range i was <laughs> i was spending kind of all morning trying to go through and trying to narrow down um some comments and really uh to be honest we don't even have to talk about this if you don't want oh i do uh, want. this is exciting yeah. <laughs> i've never piped other things into the podcast before and then reacted to it so yeah let's yeah. do it well i guess we'll see how it goes at the at the end of the day um I mean, so like, here's my notes and you can kind of see that I have a lot of feelings about this, right? <laughs> and how many, how many um, pages of notes are you? Uh, about four pages of notes. Okay. And, you know, honestly, I only went to like a 22, let's see what was the last timestamp I have? 2236. Oh shit. Well, this could be like 10 podcast episodes. It, this it, is great. It, well, it could. The problem is, I guess I, I'm self-conscious about sounding like I'm a know-it-all, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, especially in light of the fact that I think Stephanie Kelton. I mean, she seems like she's a. Uh, this is like her career, right? And this is like what she does. And I don't. I don't want to like pretend like I know more than her. You know, like. Sure. So if I'm coming across like that, I I don't intend to. <laughs> and um, if I'm coming across as preachy or like a like a lawyer or a, a um. Let's see what some other things economist. I've been, yeah, or some other things I've been called uh <laughs> logic bully. You know, like yeah. <laughs> you know, like if I'm coming across like any of that stuff, it's certainly not intended. I, um so I guess we'll have to see how it goes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we can see how it goes and we'll chop it up in the editing process or whatever. And yeah. We'll figure it out. But so what what is your overall take? Can you give a summary? Can you give a uh elevator pitch for your take on the podcast as a whole before we dive like point for point into it. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's like a, um, if I were to sum up what uh modern uh, monetary theory is in a nutshell, and I think I actually mentioned this on our walk the other day was that the same principles that can be applied to an individual can't be applied to a country or a nation or a large group of people in general. And a different subset of economic rules apply. And that's kind of the foundation of a lot of the theories that uh, come out of modern monetary theory. Yeah. Um, so it, I think – to so my, my read on that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when we think about economics, a lot of people think about it in terms of their family budget, right? 
So our family has so much income and we have so much expenses and we have debt. Like we have credit cards that we could rack up and we, you know, we're going to owe money on that debt, et cetera. And a lot of people take that model of how money works and try to apply it to um, sovereign nations that are issuing their own fiat currency out of nothing, backed by nothing, right? Is that your under? Is that your take? I, I think I just what I tried to do just there is to rephrase mm-hmm. what you said, but I think MMT is saying that you can't actually do that because an individual's family budget, where you're constrained by the currency in question, and a, a government that can create money out of thin air, that those are those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and ultimately that's where she. Yeah, I, I I think we're both kind of understanding it the same way. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, I think uh, the question really becomes: uh, really, do we agree with it? You know, I <laughs> I'm going to say a good solid no. I don't. Uh, just a preemptive. I mean, how do you feel about it? Well, so I I resonate with. Um, so there's this podcast episode, and there was another one that John Stewart did another MMT. I don't remember if it was the exact same author or not. I think it might've been the exact same author, mm-hmm. but I sent you that link in discord as well. So there's another hour and a half conversation where they're talking about MMT and maybe this book specifically. Oh man, I guess I didn't notice that. I, I the funny thing is, I feel like most of the time I actually listen to what you post. I'm, I must not have seen. Oh, that I one. apologize. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm just, uh, generally I like the other side of the story and I, uh, this, I think, is just more of the same. Like oh, okay. John Stewart has its own podcast. You remember him from The Daily Show? The oh, TV yeah. Show? Yeah. So John Stewart has its own his own podcast nowadays that I didn't know. I just subscribed to it this week. Um, but, yeah, one of the guests that he had on might have been the exact same. And we'll link to that one, too. But we're, we're going to be quoting from Pitchfork Economics and playing little excerpts and uh, reacting to uh, your notes. And you could be totally <laughs> right. I, I don't know. But, but the um, – the, the part that I resonate with that I think I understood was that a lot of times in the United States, we make fiscal decisions about when we're going to print money and when we're not going to print money. And the decisions that we make are um, feeding uh, corporations from the top down with mm-hmm. the theory that that money is going to trickle down and that normal citizens are going to see that in terms of opportunities and pay raises and uh, rental support and housing support and people are earning it right because they have jobs but there's going to be more opportunities because if we give all this money to the huge corporations by bailing out Lehman Brothers and all the other things that we've done um, that that money is going to actually help the people and it turns out that we keep trying this from the top down and it's not actually helping the people and I think part of MMT uh, is that you know you need to turn that upside down what you need to do is if you're going to print money because we have a crisis of some sort what you need to be doing is printing money at the bottom and letting the the bottom um rise up uh in terms of who's being supported not wall street right mm-hmm. and i'm somewhere in the middle right because i've been working for 27 years or whatever it is so i have money in the stock market now right so when they're talking about the you know the quote rich people end quote <laughs> uh, getting all the benefits from Boeing's stock being saved. You're talking about a few hundred of my dollars, I think, right? Because I have like the S and P 500 index fund, right? Mm-hmm. So Boeing's in there somewhere. 
So I might have two hundred dollars. I don't know specifically, but you take my entire portfolio, divide it between five hundred of the largest companies, and maybe I've got a couple hundred bucks in Boeing. I don't know, like indirectly. Mm-hmm. I don't actually have Boeing stock, but I have S and P five hundred, which part of that is Boeing, and therefore, you know. So you take twenty seven years of me working for a living and trying to save for retirement, and I hold S and P five hundred, and when you bail out Boeing, you're also bailing me out, right? You're bailing out my position in the S and P five hundred. Right. And I think what MMT is saying is that we need to not be doing that. We need to not be taking one of the things MMT is saying is we not we need to not be bailing out the top all the time. What we need to be doing is uh, providing for people at the bottom uh, and jobs and infrastructure and uh, creating things at the bottom of the spectrum. So. Cool. Uh, what, yeah, I think those are good points. Uh, one of the first ones I'd like to make uh, regarding your comments you just made is that um, as far as the phrase like top-down economics, right, um, it'd be interesting if you could find anything of people that actually believe that. So like uh, I've, I've always noticed that um, people that are pro-MMT – are anti top-down economics. But the problem is is that top-down economics is actually not a thing. Like there's no top-down economics is not the alternative to MMT. Right? Um, you know, throughout the week if you ever get like a minute you really want to waste some time in your life. <laughs> <laughs> you should try to prove me wrong because I I've actually never really seen any any economists ever say we need to bail out Boeing in order to help poor people basically. And, and, or the concept that helping out Boeing causes funds to trickle down to the lowest, even the janitor there or whatever, even maybe the homeless people on the corner down the street from Boeing, you know, like there, there's no, there's no official teachings like there is on MMT about at least a theory or concept inside of economics called trickle down economics. Well, so when when General Motors is about to go bankrupt and the U.S. government steps in, right, and loans them $75 billion or whatever it was for the GM bailout, Mm -hmm. the theory, I think, is, oh, shit, General Motors is employing this many tens of thousands of Americans, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to go bankrupt. Tens of thousands of Americans are going to lose their jobs. So we need to come in at the top and say, okay, look, here's $25 billion on interest-free loans or whatever, and – um obviously I don't know the details and I'm not looking at a Wikipedia page right now. So <laughs> apologies because <laughs> I'm getting all the numbers wrong. I'm just kind of getting, trying to get the gist of the thing, which if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But the the gist of the thing is we're going to save this corporation from going under. Right. And then when you look from a forensic, forensic accounting perspective, three years later at where that money actually went, like it worked, the government bailout worked. GM is still around. General Motors still exists. Right. And so those people still have the jobs to the extent that they have jobs and we're not offshoring all those jobs, which is a long-term trend, you know, opening plants in Mexico or overseasing it all or only final assembly happens in the United States or, you know, whatever. Um, But when you look, my understanding is at the accounting three years later, what you see is billions of those dollars went into corporate stock buybacks, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're like, oh, our stock price is so depressed, right? Our stock price has been driven down to $2. They, they'll they say, okay, well, now what we have to do is take that money and buy that stock back, right? Which props up the value of the stock, which keeps us afloat, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. But you look at the job, whether or not individual workers 
um, that were producing things, whether or not they benefited from that bailout and whether or not um, that money went to higher wages, to hiring more people, to having more people employed, et cetera, versus you look at the owners of the company and the bonuses that they made and the stock buybacks that enriched the shareholders, right, which are the, the richest of the people have, you know, while I have $200 in General Motors probably through the index, you know, the S&P 500, executives working at General Motors probably have millions of dollars, right? And so they're getting millions of dollars <laughs> right. back through those stock buybacks. So, yeah, maybe I benefited by 20 bucks, but if the if you if you look at all the people employed and all of the buy all of the the bailout money 3 years on, 3 years after the fact was quote distributed end quote to mm-hmm. the the top tier earners in the company and not all the people that you know are are actually doing the assembly line work then that that's a problem right so that isn't that an example of the theory of oh okay well you're too big to fail the us government steps in bails you out theoretically we're saving people's jobs at the bottom and maybe you are and maybe you aren't but if 80% <laughs> of that money went to the richest people that are just pocketing it because they kept all the money when times were good and the company's making billions of dollars and they kept all that money. Mm-hmm. And then when times are bad, the U.S. government is going to come in with taxpayer dollars and say, oh, shit, well, we, you're too big to fail. We can't let you fail. You know, we can't have 20,000 people lose their jobs. And they shovel money into it, right? And then they're profitable again and they pay the U.S. government back, which is, you know, fine. But win or lose... The people who own the thing at the upper in, uh, tiers of uh, income win. Win or lose, they win, right? Mm-hmm. And it's you and I, through our tax dollars, that are losing the fact that they're too big to fail and we have to bail them out, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't disagree with you that it's actually a political idea. And that is certainly the case in how it was argued. Like Whether – oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was trying to say that's top-down economics. Yeah. Right. You, you said there is no case of top down, top down economics. And I'm trying to make the case that anytime we bail out a company because it's too big to fail, a private enterprise that is theoretically engaged in free market economics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it turns out when shit hits the fan, no, we're just going to come in with tax money and save you. Those are top down, trickle down economical th- economic theories. Right. And it, it was Ronald Reagan, right, that introduced the whole in the eighties that got trickle down economics running as a, as a, as a, a theory of how this is going to work. Right. Well, we could actually talk about uh, some things that Ronald Reagan did say, uh, but he never actually said trickle down economics. So, Oh yeah. Uh, that, the, that's a disparaging term. I think, right. That That's used by people who oppose it. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that not that it's not used politically and the reasons that you gave aren't, aren't like real political reasons. What I'm trying to say is that there's not an official branch of economics that says trickle down, trickle down economics is a real thing that we need to support. You yeah. know, as opposed to like MMT actually is an a- actual economic theory that has ecclesiastical support, and it's like a theory that's kind of like trying to be developed. And encourage and kind of spread through academia, right? 
whereas trickle down economics is not it's it's isolated to the political side not the economic side well i think it's a slur phrase you know it's a it's a label it, that the left puts on it yeah you're disparagingly. right disparagingly oh and i get that too yeah. the the theory itself though even that that it's being referenced that if we bail out um general motors that it's going to the benefits are going to trickle down to the everyday average joe that idea it, it i don't even think it has an economic name so the disparaging one that you use is really the only way that people can reference it yeah and and you know an, an interesting side of this i'd say that uh, purist economists would say that gm should not have been bailed out oh yeah um and and there is really no economic theory that supports that bailing them out would actually benefit the workers in fact if you look at actually what happened and and the funny thing is is that uh during the presidential bait debates with uh, Mitt Romney and I think it was um uh Barack Obama, right? I think uh Obama supported the bailouts and Mitt Romney did not want to have anything to do with it. And um so there was a specific debate where it's almost like the tide of the election seemed to change in my opinion, and that's when Barack Obama kind of went on the offensive saying that we needed to bail them out because we needed to save the workers. We needed to do all this and that. And and he never said trickle down economics like you did, but he was kind of saying that we needed to do this to keep America going. We we need to do this because GM is a, a critical part of our society and, you know, it keeps people at work and blah, blah, blah. But Mitt Romney was like, well, we don't, we, we shouldn't do this because it's not even going to help everyday average workers. And, Part of the reason for why he was saying that was that it was exactly like you said, that we wanted to do some uh, share buyback, right? And the reason why, at least in my personal opinion, why it does not trickle down is because the people that are heavily invested in GM don't want the stock prices to fall because that is a direct impact on their bottom line. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, directly, like you're saying, well, you have, you might have 200 bucks, whatever. <laughs> in GM, but these guys have millions of dollars in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the problem is, is that if GM actually went through the process of declaring bankruptcy, all the workers would have been paid first, right? And then whatever was left over, the last people to get paid are the stockholders, and they they don't they don't want that. That does not mean though that GM would just go away. It's almost like a financial reset, and stockholders stand to suffer the most from the financial reset. And Mitt Romney argued that we need to let GM take care of GM and do the right thing. And bailing out GM does not help the workers or everyday people. It literally takes from everyday people and gives to the stockholders. And right. he was like, he was dead set against it, but he wasn't really making a good case. And he was, I just kind of remember like looking at him and almost like, feeling sorry for him because he couldn't make his case. The whole atmosphere for the country at the time was like, oh, GM needs to be bailed out. GM needs to be bailed out, you know, because for the reasons you said, I think that people were kind of hypnotized by that. Not everybody, but it seems like a lot of people were. Yeah. Well, and I think one wrinkle in this is that if you work those old school factory jobs for 30 years and you have a retirement fund, mm -hmm. a lot of your retirement money is tied up in the company for which you're working stock, mm -hmm. right? Like don't the, the company you work for, don't you have a bunch of stock in your employers? 
Oh yeah, as far as like the pension is concerned. Yeah, 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 and and that is something that I think that would suffer. But even then, I think that the pension gets paid before the stockholders do. I could be wrong on that. Uh, in fact, I can't. I I honestly I don't know the exact impact. The idea though is that um, people that are invested in the company and people with pensions are theoretically people that are heavily invested into the company are the ones that would suffer the most. Like the people that are about ready to retire anyways, not the people that are just starting out there and starting out in life with, you know, low skills or whatever. Yeah. What I'm thinking about as a wrinkle to this is if they have a scheme where the 401k is matched, like doubled, if you have, um, if you want stock in your own company, right? We're mm-hmm. going to double your stock, right? Because yeah. I've, I've heard of that, people that have lots of stock in the company in which they work and their entire retirement, not their entire, but like 80, 80% of the retirement is based on um, stock options and stocks that they hold in the company that they work for, right? Mm-hmm. So not only have I been working here for 30 years to make money, but my entire retirement portfolio is not in a pension that might be protected. It's in a 401k right? Where it's just mine free and clear in an IRA, Mm -hmm. not free and clear until I'm 65. But, um, and (laughs) if you let the stock price price tumble, right. Then there's a, there's a common worker that gets totally screwed because they put 35 years of their life into it. And all of their retirement savings went into stocks of the company. Mm Mm-hmm. And now that company, if it goes bankrupt, what what are the two title twelve and title eleven or whatever reorganization? I'm not sure. Anyway, there's different ways you, companies go bankrupt, and who gets paid, you know, is depending on the class of shares and all that stuff, and who, you know, are the uh, pensions safe? I have no idea. But yeah. uh, either way, I guess my point, overall point, is is that the theory behind that kind of motivated a lot of people, the trickle down economics, um. There, that motivation is to bail out the stockholders. Yeah, right. There was no talk about letting them go through bankruptcy, but but preserving the pensions through taxpayer dollars, right? Which is technically something that I might even be behind, right? Yeah. <laughs> like like saying you guys need to go through bankruptcy, and the last people that need to get paid are the stockholders. And you know what? This government will actually bail out. The people that have worked there for 40 years or whatever, and we'll, we'll make sure that their pensions and their retirement is good. Yeah. I would be a hundred million percent behind an idea like that. But the problem is, is that that theory that you were talking about doesn't support a concept like that. It was never brought up. And the alternative is what they did, which was bail out the stockholders so that the company didn't have to go through the bankruptcy plans. None of that stuff was even questioned, thinking that, well, it trickled down. Well, I guess theoretically, Bailing out the stockholders in this case might have trickled down, quote unquote, to the people that were about to retire. I don't know. At the end of the day, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that the trickle down economics concept is a is a political concept, not an economic concept. And it's a political concept that's almost like a manipulative one that gets people to believe it in order to pass specific leg- legislation. Um, but there's really no solid economic theory behind it. Is, it that that was my only point. I, 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 I certainly don't disagree that that's something that's proposed and said and done on a political level. But yeah, and, and my understanding of corporate bailouts is the U.S. Treasury comes in and says, "Okay, well, you've got thirty-five billion dollars in your checking account now, or whatever, 
right? So like the crisis never happened and the company can just go, oh shit, okay, we've got $35 billion. We're not bankrupt at all. And they can, (laughs) they can figure it out and pay that, you know, loan back. And I've also heard things that surprised me about the U.S. taxpayers in some cases have actually made uh, – that's been a really good deal for the U.S. taxpayers when you look at it five years later. Because in profitable industries, the tax money that was used to bail them out and not let them fail, which is what you know standard um, free market economics would say, well, you just let them go bankrupt and their competitors will step in and they'll get jobs with their competitors and there isn't a problem, right? Like bankruptcy and – Having to change jobs is part of capitalism. That's free markets, baby. You know, roll with it. But um, what was my point? Oh, so they just had thirty-five billion dollars available now. So now there is no crisis, right? Right. And the taxpayers actually got a good uh, interest back on uh, some of those emergency loans, where the taxpayer actually did well because they got paid back with interest. The, the taxpayer, right? The money mm-hmm. got shoveled back into the U.S. Treasury with interest. And so the common taxpayer like you and I actually came out ahead by bailing them out. But, uh, you know, other companies that we try to bail out and they don't make it or whatever. <laughs> so right. And then there's the ones you let go bankrupt. Like, was it Lehman Brothers? We just let them, we just let them collapse. And- yeah, and there were some other ones that I think that we've kind of tried to bail out historically. We tried, but they just, they failed anyways. I think yeah. uh, Solyndra was one of those maybe. Um, I'd have to look them up. Really, I could be completely wrong with that. But so there is a wide spectrum of things and and there is no risk. The government doing doesn't eliminate risk. I guess the overall idea, I guess, would be um, did overall with all the bailouts considered did the taxpayer make money or lose money? Yeah. Um, So so I, I think MMT says, look, instead of just saying, oh, hey, here's thirty five billion dollars to sit in your bank account. Right. Pay us back when you can. Instead of doing that, MMT, I think, says we need to go down to the actual employees and support them instead. And that's an interesting idea. Do you, do you actually think that that happens? Not, no. In, not, in my lifetime, that's not what happens. In my lifetime, what happens is the Treasury Department cuts one check for $35 billion and the board of directors is in charge of what they do with that $35 billion. Oh right. I guess what I'm I guess what I'm trying to ask is um has the government control over the dollar and its intentional inflation of the dollar been a boon to people that are on the lower side of the income spectrum? Generally speaking, that's the that's the point. Well, right? Inflation hurts poor people the most. Right. That's kind of one of my side notes that yeah. I think is disgusting, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Like, like inflation, like I can survive inflation way better than than somebody who's, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Oh, for sure. In, in fact, uh, and there's lots of reasons for that, you know, for, for like, uh, you know, like I took my truck in the other other day to get some work done on it. And they were almost begging me to sell my truck to the dealer so they could sell a used vehicle, Right. And that's because like uh, inflation has made it to where my truck itself is quite valuable now. But what were they proposing? They they wanted you to put you in a new truck? No, they they just wanted to flat out give me cash and give me a ride home. Right. Like, yeah. But now you don't have a car. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. At, at the end the of the thing. day. No, I, I get it. But the, that's the that's how fucked up the market is. Right. I mean, like if you're a two if you're a two car household and you can be a one car household. Great. 
Yeah. You know, now might be a time to cash in because maybe three years from now, car prices come down again, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And sorry for the dogs barking in the background. But uh, the the idea being that poor people are hurt really, really severely because they are living paycheck to paycheck and they don't have the ability to get the things that gain value instead of lose value with inflation. Right. What gains value with inflation? Well, any type of asset. So like, and it may not um, gain value because of inflation, but it does not lose value because of inflation. God, it's so annoying that my dogs just can't oh, seem I, to I can't. I can barely hear it. So oh, yeah. maybe my headphones block better. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Hopefully the so, microphone. Right. So like, so you and I are both homeowners, uh-huh. right? In high inflation, the housing market goes crazy. And maybe we'll have million dollar houses if everything goes insane for the next 20 years. Right. And we'll, we're sitting on million dollar houses. Yeah. But we can't sell it for a million dollars if every house costs a million dollars. Right. That's true. I so, guess what I'm trying to say is, is that on, on paper, we're getting richer thanks to inflation and we have assets that inflate. Right. But functionally, we're not any richer because every house that is an equivalent of our houses costs just as much. <laughs> so right. we didn't make any money. So like if you were, if you're, you know, in, in, I don't know why I'm always picking on San Francisco. Say you're in Austin, <laughs> Texas, right? Yeah. And the housing market went insane. And suddenly your little bungalow that you bought in the seventies for $50,000 is worth like, you know, 800 grand in mm-hmm. Austin, Texas, right? Well, in Austin, Texas, that 800 grand is just going to get you the equivalent of, you know, the, the same house you're already in. It doesn't do you any good. But you could move to Omaha or you could move to Arkansas and, you know, live like a king in a castle, in a massive castle with tons of land and stuff, you know. But yeah, so it depends on whether or not you're willing to move. But when the entire housing market goes up nationwide, uh, I'm not sure who wins because all houses are more expensive. I guess the home people constructing homes win. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, the point that I was trying to make is uh, – so houses are somewhat of a different story in and of itself. And um, what, I try, what I'm trying to say is, is that uh, the original word inflation meant the um, expansion of the money supply. That was the original economic term associated with inflation. And because it – because inflation or the expansion of the money supply – directly related to va- the value of money the the money that's being inflated decreasing over time it has actually just kind of become synonymous with inflation uh so th- the the rise of good and serv- goods and services as a result of diluting the money supply is what is commonly today referred to as inflation right because they're so closely linked and we've seen that for hundreds of years. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that people that are rich don't just have money in the bank. They have invested their money in alternative things that are – they have intrinsic value in and of itself. And that value isn't defined by the money supply. It's defined by the value that that product brings to society. So uh, a house, for example, or stocks or – um other types of things. So gold, for example, is a good one to really kind of consider because uh, it te- it tends to be the inverse of inflation. If inflation is high, gold values are high. If inflation is really low, gold values are 
really low, right? And I think I said inversion, but um, I guess it depends on how you look at it. But you get my point, right? So, like, let's. I, I know say- that's the theory. I, I, I have one piece of gold, uh-huh. and so I, I look at the spot price, mm-hmm. and as far as I can tell, it's not true. <laughs> That the, I know the theory is that it tracks it, that it correlates inversely to inflation, but when inflation goes up and gold barely moves, which is what was the status two days ago, um, that seems to it seems to not be true. So it's not. So I don't think it's something that can be looked at on a daily level, but it's a it's a trend that that happens together. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Not like. Uh, there's a lot of inflation today. So tomorrow the value of gold should go up. It kind of depends on the situation. My point is, is that like, let's say 20 or not 20, but let's say in the sixties, you bought $20 worth of gold. Um, uh, or you could even say in the nineties, $20 worth of gold, right? Um, when it was at its lowest in a long time, I think it was like down to $200 an ounce or something in the nineties, the nineties were, kind of noted for a, a period, a long period of, of, uh, low inflation for the United States. If you were, uh, since I just know the numbers for the sixties, if we go to the sixties, let's say you bought, you know, $20 worth of gold and you also put $20 in the bank, right? A hundred dollars today would not be able to buy you what $20 could back then. But that same $20 worth of gold is not worth $20 anymore. It's worth more, right? Especially, so I, I think, so, and and that's a tricky thing to say because gold in and of itself doesn't really have any value other than the value that it brings society from its actual uses and not its money. And what I mean by that is, is that if you took, let's say there was zero inflation and you bought $20 worth of gold, and twenty dollars, and you just had twenty dollars in the bank. Theoretically, today your your money in the bank would be worth more because you've made interest on it. Whereas the gold just sits there, and, and its own value just comes from uh, like a form of security. It's like a thing that you can buy. So I guess my point is is that um, people that are rich and have money have taken their money out of the bank, right? And they have put it in commodities. They put it in um, home ownership. They, they probably diversified, generally speaking, in a lot of different things, um, that have value in and of themselves. And therefore it's not connected directly to the value, like the value of money that goes down with inflation. So what I'm trying to say is, is that inflation itself is a tax on savings, not a tax on assets. And, that's why I think it really is painful to regular people like me and you to have inflation and especially painful for really poor people that just want to be able to buy food, right? It's really painful for them to go through it, whereas people that have their uh, their money not in the bank but being used uh, don't really suffer as much from it. I guess that was kind of the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm staring at a 100-year gold chart, inflation-adjusted. Maybe this does or maybe this doesn't correlate with mm-hmm. the inflation rate. I don't know. But yeah, what what you wanted to do. Well, if it's inflation, if you have a time ad- machine. If it's inflation adjusted, that that does interpret 
that does change how you want to read it though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. <laughs> just keep that in mind. Yeah. You, it absolutely changes how you want to read it. So what you wanted to do, dear listeners, is in 1970, you wanted to buy gold at inflation adjusted $269 because it spiked a whole hell of a lot to 1980. Then it crashed. Yep. You wanted to buy it back in 2001 because in 2001 was the local low over the last few decades. And then now it's uh, trying to get to $2,000 an ounce again. Yeah. So. so that's really interesting, those years that you kind of did. The 70s was marked by a lot of inflation. Um, I think, uh, and that persisted, I think, into the early 80s. And then um, after the early 80s and the 90s was marked by a period of low inflation and prosperity. And 2001 was 9-11, right? Um, another marker for what causes inflation is actually war. And and we were kind of involved with two heavy wars, you know, and that all started right then. So then the price of gold goes up because inflation goes up <laughs> because you have to pay for those wars somehow. And the one way to do it a politically convenient way to do it is through inflation or um, increasing the supply of money. Yeah. If you, if you bought gold at nine and at basically nine 11, then in 2012, it peaked around $2,200 mm-hmm. and then it plummeted back down to 1400 and now it's back up to 2000. Yeah. Basically. That's a lot. So yeah, <clears throat> I, I, ideally, you would have, in 2001, you would have bought it, and then 10 years later, you would have sold it. <laughs> and then you would have bought it back again five years later, and you'd still have it today. Yeah. The the overall concept that I was trying to make, though, is that rich people suffer less from inflation because they can diversify the, their savings into actual assets instead of money in the bank. Because the money in the bank is losing value, whereas the assets are depending on what those assets are, at least maintaining their inflation level value. You know what I'm saying? If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. If all you have is cash, you're bleeding money at whatever the inflation rate is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that being said, I can't actually remember why we were talking about all this. Oh, Uh, but well, (laughs) so my, maybe we were on this, maybe we were agreeing, maybe we weren't that if the U S government is going to do bailouts, Maybe, like modern monetary theory apparently says, maybe what we should do is give the bailout to the workers, give it to the worker class instead of giving it to the ownership class mm-hmm. of the companies. Oh, yeah. And I, I think we so actually – you're pro-MMT, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you took all these notes <laughs> and you didn't realize you're actually a fan of this theory. And, well, see – <laughs> I think that there's actually some some different foundation that I have to bailing out the workers. Let's say, for example, and this is probably a crazy example. Let's say I have a boat and I'm like, hey, Jay, let's go for a cruise on this boat. I'm going to charge you, you know, a uh, $1,000 and we're going to go out to sea and we're just going to have a blast, right? We're going to have a good old time. Okay. So you're like, oh, that sounds great. Let's do it. So we get out there, we have a good old time, and I'm like, all right, well, we're done with the good old time. Now it's $1,000 to get back. (laughs) So I look at uh, that as a type of fraud, right? Yeah. yeah. 
so in a way, I feel like the workers who were promised a pension and a good competitive running of the company um, should be at extremely low risk to get what they've been promised, right? Yeah. And I think it's fraudulent to go through a bankruptcy thing and give it to stockholders who, though, when those stockholders are basically the ones that made decisions that drove the company into the ground, I think that they should be the ones that have to pay for those bad decisions, and 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 they should be obligated to make sure that their commitments are paid, <laughs> especially to people regular every every everyday average people. And I think it's it it's fraudulent um, to go through bankruptcy so that way that the people that drove the company into the ground can benefit. Um, at the cost of people that they made promises to. Mm-hmm. Um, in that regard, that's why I think that they, they should have been bailed. Like I would not have bailed out the stockholders. I would have been okay with uh, doing some sort of funding or loan to uh, cover um, pensions um, because I feel like as workers, they were uh, they were promised that. They were faithful employees that stuck around for the, the, the time that they said they were going to do it. I feel like the company owes them um, and and taking them halfway out to sea and and then just kind of dropping them off (laughs) is uh, really shitty in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, so in other words, I'm not trying to say that I support MMT by that. I know you're kind of joking around anyways, but um, uh, to me, there's a, a, a somewhat of a moral dilemma that needs to be met there. And I think that, um, what I don't want is like legal scapegoating to use bankruptcy as a way to put money in stockholder pockets. That's the only thing that I would be concerned about Hmm. as a form of sort of justice, I guess, (laughs) Uh, uh, protecting the person, people that are on the boat. In other words. Yeah. So, so we're agreed that if the government is going to bail something, some bail people out, it's the workers that should get bailed out. Yeah. And yeah. um, Cool. uh, At, at the end of the day, I think the foundations and things like that, that these principles are MMT is based on is kind of like um, misguided in a way. Um, and, and we can kind of talk about some of these things or we can even play the opening part of it. I think. Yeah. Whatever you want to react to, why don't you play it and we'll get sued and then, uh, well, we won't get sued until later. <laughs> do you, do you think, uh, do you think like playing like two minutes of it is, 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 is bad? I'm just asking. No, I think it's fine. We'll, we'll link the hell out of it and, we're going to talk over it too, right? So yeah. if people want this product, they should go download the, the product from Pitchfork Economics, mm-hmm. obviously. So like if we're doing reaction kind of commentary on top of it, then I think that's totally legitimate. Two minutes sounds like a long time, but it's not music. It's a conversation. So, so and, and you know, like uh, we can stop it at any time. And it, yeah. so if you want me to just stop it. Um uh, just let me know. Yeah. So uh, this is so, this is in the beginning. This is at uh, about a minute. Well, one point or one uh, one minute thirty five seconds. Uh, this is actually kind of uh, something that I agree with. Well, Goldie, today uh, we get to interview the woman of the moment, our friend Stephanie Kelton, who is one of the nation's biggest proponents of modern monetary theory. And it's the moment because uh, one of the things that MMT says is that federal debts and deficits uh, don't really matter in and of themselves. 
a deficit doesn't matter. It's uh, inflation we should be looking at. Are we maxing out the resources in the economy rather than uh, these uh, fictional numbers about dollars and the deficit? And right now, Nick, we are just racking up huge deficits all of a sudden and nobody seems to care. Yeah, we are running a giant natural experiment as we have been for the last 30, right. 40 years, is the deficit has gone from essentially zero to 20 trillion or more uh, on MMT. It, what's fascinating, of course, is that none of the predictions of doom right. that conventional economic thinking has made have come to pass. And, you know, when I first heard about MMT, I was sort of deeply skeptical. I was like, right. At first, when you first hear it, you think, well, that's just crazy talk, right? That, that, and, and, you know, the truth is the more you think about it, more ways you turn it over in your head, the more sense it makes, right. particularly in the context of the actual evidence available. <laughs> You've been, I- so there is, um, there's a lot to unwrap there, right? <laughs> I agree that debt in and of itself is not bad. Um, I agree that inflation is what matters, but then start things start to get a little weird on me. He says, we've been doing this experiment for 30 or 40 years with MMT. No, no. I think he meant massive deficits for 30 or 40 years. Right. And I think that those are actually closely related to MMT, right? I think that's kind of his point, but he did say we've been doing this experiment for 30 to 40 years. Well, but, uh, right. So, so my understanding of MMT is it's just trying to describe how it is that the economy has in fact worked since we went off the gold stamp, that this is how economics works. Oh, right. Um, but, uh, in that regard though, uh, the gold standard isn't really related to the value of money in the sense that, um, well, it used you to could be. be, oh, go ahead. Well, it used to be. It it is, um, but that that's just that's just a restriction to inflation, right? In the original sense of diluting the money supply, right? right. So, like, if you have, if if you say, you know, we we have enough gold to back this money up, right. you can literally go trade it in. Then that says to politicians, well, we can't dilute the money supply, right? Um, you know, we get more gold that comes in, but you know, our hands are tied. Right. Um, Fort Knox, you have 1 billion ounces of gold, <laughs> yeah. which means you have 1 billion U.S. dollars. Right. Every U.S. dollar is backed by gold. You can go to the go to the bank and say, I want this in gold. Right. And they have to give you gold by law. Yeah. Um, Until so, they, you know, w- w- when did we leave the gold standard in the 70s? Uh, th- I thought we actually did in the 30s. The 30s? Yeah. Um, we, I think at least we were transitioning away from that. And and I think that some people might argue with me about the 30s, but I think the problem is is that I think that there's certain elements of the gold standard that slowly went away. I think in the 30s they took away the ability for people to own gold themselves, and they also made it to where you couldn't cash in a dollar for a dollar of gold. So maybe one could argue that the gold standard still existed. And possibly they weren't trying to dilute the money supply. But if you can't trade it in for gold, is it really backed by gold at that point? Because then it becomes this kind of 
fake currency that at, at the end of the day, I, I think the process started at thir- in the 30s and I think was culminated in the 70s by just saying, well, we don't care about it, which is oddly that it ended in the 70s uh, completely and we just kind of just completely let it go out the window. And the 70s uh, was a decade of insane inflation in the United States, right? <laughs> um, probably because that maybe that is true that that standard was completely lifted at that point and politicians had the free, uh, the freedom to just do whatever they wanted with the money supply. Um, hmm. Yeah. So FDR took us off the gold standard in 1933, but then the Nixon shock in 1971 is when, um, effectively led to the end of the Bretton Woods agreement and the convertibility of U.S. dollars into gold. So I don't really understand those two things. But Yeah. So in, anyway, the, uh, sorry, what was, so like backing all the way up to the podcast, I, it, it's not that, you know, it's not that the MMT people have been running an experiment for 30 or 40 years. Oh, right. Yeah. And I get <laughs> it's that. It's that we've been doing high deficits for 30 or 40 years. Yes. And, Modern monetary theory says, okay, here's here's how this money supply works. This is this is how the facts on the ground can be explained. And the label that we put on this thing is modern monetary theory. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that what so one reason why they were saying I think the last forty or thirty or forty years is is what you're is the point that you made that well, we've kind of completely been off this for whatever, and we've kind of really had these large deficits for a while. We don't have any direct evidence that the massive inflation that everybody warned about is happening, right? That's kind of their point in, in general, right? Would you agree with that? No, I, I, so, I think their their point is that inflation is what matters, right? And we do have the highest inflation now since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. I think that's what... Is that what I posted in Discord? Oh, did you? The I'm New not York sure. Times <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So we have in the last 50 years, like in my lifetime, we've now hit a new high for inflation, right? Which really sucks. Yeah, for especially for people living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So and so like and this is what this is what gets me is that I agree that debt in and of itself um, is irrelevant and. And the reason why I say that is because and an MMT person would just try to choke me to death for saying this. So like if, if um, someone that has plans to forego wages today to uh, go to college and get a degree, that one way in which they could do that is they could just take out loans, right? But they they they're they know that they're picking a pretty good solid field and and that they'll be able to uh, pay that loan back with interest and then plus uh, be in a net positive for themselves for the rest of their lives. In that regard, taking out the loans and the interest is a value to you and to your future by giving you the capital that you need to make your life efficient and prosperous and all those other things. In that regard, loan itself could actually be loans could be good for society, yeah, right? Debts can be great if yeah. they get you into a better position. Yeah, yeah. Um, that being said, debts in and of themselves aren't bad, but inflation is bad, which I we do agree on. 
Yeah. One thing that they say later on in the podcast, and we can we can go to hear these directly if you want, but um, one thing that they make this uh, crazy argument to, um, which is, um, let's say uh, the country itself has one hundred dollars worth of expenses. Do you have the time, Mark? Uh, let me see if I can find that. I think it'd be helpful to play the clip because you and I might be hearing the clip differently. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's actually why I wanted to do it, but uh, I I knew I'd like fluster around and like (laughs) not be very good at this because um, I've never really done it before. It's really just a kind of an attempt, but we can, we can actually go there. I just need to remember where that was. I I think there was something that I, Oh, I think it might be around seven forty eight. And still turn on the TV and see sports. You know, you turn on the TV and you're checking in on your favorite team and you hear the announcer say, oh boy, you know, the Chiefs aren't going to uh, be able to pull this one off unless they can overcome a 14 point deficit in the next half. Well, well, that's how we think about deficits. There's something wrong with them. There's something you want to eliminate. They're a problem. And when we're talking about the government's finances, you know, we could just as easily substitute the word surplus every time we see the word deficit. And the sentence would still have meaning. So let me give you an example. When the government's budget is in deficit, it simply means that the government is spending more dollars into the economy than it is subtracting back out, mostly through taxation. So if the government spends, let's say, $100 into the U.S. economy, but it only taxes 90 of those dollars back out, we label that a fiscal deficit. We say the government's budget is in deficit. And then a lot of people get very anxious. But what they forget is that if the government has spent 100 in and only subtracted away 90, somebody's got 10, right? Their deficit is our financial surplus. Their red ink is our black ink. They're two sides of the same coin. We choose to dialogue using one word, deficit, to describe what's happening, when we could just as easily substitute the word surplus and talk about the same outcome from the perspective of the non-government part of the economy. So yes, you're right. Every deficit is good for someone. The question is, for whom and for what purpose, right? What, What do you think about that? Yeah, it sounds right to me. So do you th- so you're saying that as long as it's good for somebody uh the deficit is fine so like uh for example uh we go into a deficit to um uh to make it to where we uh pay a GM uh money to bail out all the shareholders that deficit and and putting money into the pockets of shareholders is benefiting someone so it's by default good. No, I'm not saying it's by default good or bad. What, what, so, so I think the point she's making is just one of language. Like what, what is our lexicon when we talk about these things? And what the point that she's making is that if we spend a billion dollars on roads, right, the government in, in the traditional language system that we've all used and I've used my whole life, the government has a deficit of a billion dollars. Right. But what, what, but she's saying you could also call that a surplus. The government has a surplus of a billion dollars because we've put that money into public goods and infrastructure. Right. She's just saying the word you use doesn't matter. 
the money went from somewhere to somewhere else. And as long as the money is doing what we want it to do in society, then that's a good thing. If the money is doing stuff we don't want it to do in society, then that's a bad thing, right? So if we get a billion dollars worth of good roads, then that's good. Mm -hmm. But if we give a billion dollars to Bernie Madoff because we feel bad because he's in prison, in my opinion, that's bad. That's a billion dollars we shouldn't give to Bernie Madoff. So Right. So I would, uh, I would agree with those statements that you made. But uh, here in the podcast, she's not distinguishing between how the money is spent. That's actually one of the concerns that I have about this theory is that it, it's almost like she's creating something from nothing in all cases. And the but something that's what the Fed does. The Fed right. creates money from nowhere. Right. And it's on in her mind and I think maybe in your mind that it's a wash, right? No, the risk is inflation. The risk, so and and that's the funny part. Uh, historically, remember what I said that historically inflation was the increase of the money supply, and it was so closely related to increasing costs that they kind of became synonymous over time. And now they kind of inflation is the increase of costs only, right? So, I guess what I'm trying to say is is what is that difference from an economic standpoint and how is it represented and who it, who pays for it? Because there is like an adage in economics and kind of in life really that I find, um, I, I mean, it's so true that it, it just never goes away, that there is no such thing as a free lunch. The government doesn't really create anything. So how does it kind of- It creates US dollars. <laughs> well, it does, but at what cost? <laughs> Right. That's the that's the real question. Way less that, than a dollar each. <laughs> that's the real question that economics asks that she never addresses. So, and and I can give you some real world examples. So the Hoover Hoover Dam was built, uh, but with a loan, right? And and do you know at the time like how they justified the loan and the government going into debt for that? Uh, if you don't know it, no big deal, I guess. Well, I could I, guess. Do you want me to guess? Oh, sure. I don't Actually, know, no, this is I good. I, no, I think that this is good. Like, why would somebody want to loan in the, in the case of the Hoover Dam? Well, so my, my understanding of the Hoover Dam is that the Colorado River Basin was constantly flooding, just like the Missouri River Basin was mm -hmm. constantly flooding. And it wasn't until the 50s or whatever that the Army Corps of Engineers came in and dammed everything up. And like post-World War II, I think, is when the Corps of Engineers did shit tons of damming projects so that our um, crop fields weren't getting flooded all the time, that little cities weren't being flooded all the time. Mm -hmm. And for the Hoover Dam, a lot of it was hydroelectric. Like we had this brand new – well, not – well, okay, the, the modern <laughs> – we've had hydro, quote, electric, end quote, <laughs> power since, you know, we were – you know, the Florence mill, I think was a Creek mill, right? Where the mm -hmm. Creek would, the water would flow and then the Creek would turn the stone and the stone would do the wheat and the whatever. Right. Um, I assume that's why there was a mill there. Uh, I don't know where the Creek went when they put the interstate in the Creek went away. They rerouted the Creek. I, I don't know, even know. But anyway, so <laughs> we've been using water wheels to crush wheat for hundreds of years, but the, the Hoover dam at the time, I think was the largest hydroelectric dam ever conceived like the amount of concrete that went into the hoover dam was just absolutely insane mm -hmm. and by 
putting that wall there and creating Lake Mead and Lake whatever it is that's right next to that. It has another name, I think. But Lake Mead and controlling the Colorado River so that it doesn't flood. You can control how much water goes in and out of Lake Mead through the Hoover Dam, et cetera, and a bunch of other dam projects. Like there's 50 different dams on the Colorado River and then shitloads of aqueducts and everything because mm-hmm. it's feeding like four states worth of fresh water, you know, four, four different states get their water from uh, wells and they get their water from the Colorado River from the snowmelt in the Rocky Mountains, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that would be my guess. I don't know. that. That's my guess is they wanted the hydroelectric power and they wanted flood control. Yeah. So I'm actually looking for – Well, and they also wanted a jobs program, right, because they had shitloads of people coming back. And uh, was it FDR's New Deal or whatever where he's like – Oh, no, that was out of the Great Depression. I'm not a historian, but I assume it was a very good thing that we put tens of thousands of people to work building shit like that mm-hmm. all over the country. Like just tons and tons and tons and tons of, uh, you know, the, the the entire interstate system got built, all of the levees, all of the dams, all of the, you know, before I was born, most of the massive infrastructure of the, of the 20th century uh, was government debt that turned into infrastructure. Right. So essentially what you're saying is the value of the, having a dam like the Hoover dam was probably costly, but in your mind and to the governments at the time, it was worth it. Well, no, I think it's fucking stupid to build cities and deserts, but that's my personal opinion. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) But uh, at the time it was kind of like what you were saying, you know, like downstream things were flooding. You know, we wanted a way to regulate that, to keep the stuff from flooding. We wanted the power from the bridge and we wanted whatever else the politicians at the time, you know, uh, wanted from this. So they, but the cost of the Hoover dam was really expensive. Oh yeah. The idea behind sitting up alone uh, on any government level is to actually make it to where, the people that benefit from it um, uh, share in the paying of it. And what I mean by that is the Hoover Dam has been, it was erected, I guess it was started in 1931, ended in 1936. Oh, before World War II. It, it must have been like, uh, I mean, that was like right before World War II. Yeah. Um, so it's been around and benefiting society for 86 years, which is multiple generations. The idea behind the government taking out loans is a way of distributing current costs to future generations, essentially, if if you want to look at it like that. So in other words, we're buying things today that are expensive and uh, we're going to pay it back over time. and, And part of that responsibility lies to future people that are going to benefit from it. I think that was actually part of the uh, uh, actual uh, reasonings for taking out loans for a big project like the Hoover Dam is so that the cost can be spread out throughout generations. When you look at that in the context of other debt, um, so she's actually making it sound like the cost uh, of not direct taxation is just kind of up in the air and uh, that portion of the funding is a wash. Um, and it can be looked at like a surplus and a deficit at the same time. So I, I think when we, me and you were discussing it, it was more like, well, uh, the debt, you know, is a billion dollars worth of highways. Well, we end up with a billion dollars worth of highways that everybody gets to use, but that doesn't really represent the cost of the debt and the inflation of the dollar. Like she's specifically talking about, which is that $10 that, um, 
can't be obtained directly. So it's literally just printed off, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that she's kind of falsely not only representing what loans represent from the government, but she's also falsely kind of representing what is officially happening when the government spends money that it doesn't have by printing it. To her, it's like, well, all it is is just running a press. But in the original term of inflation, which was expanding the money supply, which led to higher prices, and we can even talk about the, the mechanic of that if you want, the idea being that politicians are exceptionally tempted to not raise taxes to meet the costs. In her original $100 story, it would probably be political suicide for any politician to say, we need to increase taxes to pay for this directly, right? So I don't know what the $100 story is because you didn't play it in the clip, I don't think. Oh, it was in there. It was? Yeah, she was talking about the government has $100 worth of expenses, um, but we oh. only meet $90 of that right now. And the $10 that the government prints is what she is saying was the surplus. So she originally called it deficit, but you could also consider it a surplus. Because that 10%, if it doesn't have to be paid, is uh, like money just kind of randomly generated and then paid out. And that payout of the 10%, and we can, if you want, we can actually listen to it again. That payout of the 10% is both a deficit and a surplus to her because nobody, quote unquote, had to pay it. But because... I didn't, oh, I didn't get that out of the clip at all. Oh, <laughs> Well, maybe you want to play it again. We can. I'm confused because um, because she started with just saying, "Hey, the language that we're using here is is driving the way that we perceive it in a way that's not necessarily helpful." Because if we're doing really good things with the money, right? Those those monies flow into the economy and do all those really good things, which is great. Right. Right. Now we're paying interest on the debt, right? So that's not great because those are going to whoever loaned us the money in the first place, right? The mm -hmm. IOUs come due with interest. Yeah. And that's where the money comes from. So if and, we're not just printing it, right? Yeah. But it, it depends on you, you have so much in US savings bonds where people are owed, but then they can just print another one point three trillion out of nowhere. Yeah. Whenever they want, <laughs> right? But yeah, play, play, play that. Let's see. Let me get play the second down. half of it again. Because the first thing she was saying is just, "Hey, the words we're using aren't helpful all the time, and it's not necessarily a bad thing for the government to spend money. We should look at it as a good thing when it's used well, right? Right. And it, it it's just yeah, it's 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 two sided. What's it called? Double book accounting, double double column accounting. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know if you've ever done accounting where you just have the the two. What's it called? Side by side, double book, double entry, double entry. That's it. Right? Double entry accounting. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not really sure what that <laughs> is. But anyways, go on. Anyway, the point the point of double entry accounting is, uh, it's not just that you have a balance and uh, you have a hundred dollars, and then you have ninety dollars, and you have eighty dollars. That's like your what your checking account looks like. But in double entry accounting, every dollar that went from anywhere goes somewhere and it's somewhere else now. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, if you get deep into accounting, what you have is double entry of everything everywhere. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> when you have, 
when you adopt a, a crazy dog that your neighbor tricks you into adopting, right? <laughs> you're never going to let me know. Let, me let that go. You're going to account for that. It's not just that you spent $30 and the $30 poof is gone. What happens is you open a Huey account and the Huey account is absorbing $30, $30, $30, $30, right? Yeah. And so it tallies up, you know, however much dollars over 10 years or right. So the So that's the only point she's making is that every, uh, all debts of the government are going somewhere and hopefully those things are doing good things. Right. Know? So uh, an, another thing that she actually talks about in here is comparing like a, a printing of money and the deficit as if it's like a leaf blower, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty funny analogy, but we can play this again. But well, one it's thing, not even a leaf blower. I mean, they just click numbers on a computer and poof. Right. So it, they, it, they don't actually even have to print money. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, not even that hard. And I'm actually glad you brought that up because I think what you said is actually really insightful, right? Like if you look at it, like it's a form of accounting, like it's, it's a uh, $10 um, out is a benefit to somebody. To right? somebody. Yeah. Right. It went somewhere. Right. I think that that actually is forgetting half of the equation of where it came from. And I, 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 her point is, well, it's just printed, right? Well, it depends. So it's yeah. either, it's either backed by us savings bonds. Right. Right. Or it's backed by fucking nothing. <laughs> right. It, it, because yeah. we literally just spent, you know, we just said, Oh, $1.3 trillion spending bill. Yeah. So, and this is another thing that actually confuses me. I think, Sometimes I get uh, – this is an area where I don't actually understand uh, the financial accounting of the country. So, yeah, no, so there's deficit. What, what is the money supply right now? How many right. U.S. dollars exist? So – oh, right. So – and that's the thing, right? The printing of the dollar, I think, to make up for that $10, $10 like we, get, we only tax 90 but the government expenses are 100 We need $10 to make up for that. Let's just print 10 more dollar bills, right? That's the type of thing that I'm, I guess I'm kind of considering, uh, here in this case. There's also the debt, like the deficit, like that's always called the trade deficit, where, you know, you have, uh, less going out than coming in financially. And, I, um, there's also some other things about the loans that I don't really quite understand. Like the government can't loan itself money. <laughs> so, like, there's this weird hokey trick where they, they, I don't, I don't even know. It's, it's this weird hokey, stuff that I don't understand that I need to look into. At the end of the day, uh, I guess what my thought is, is that $10 that are the additional expenses that we can't make up. She's almost acting like it's coming. It's, it's being created by the government. Can, can right? you play it again? I, oh, sure. I and, missed and, it somehow. And, and, and I just want to get this out so you can kind of listen for my point when she's talking. So that way you can look for an answer. Or maybe a response, but that that ten dollars is just kind of th there's no accounting from her end about where it comes from or where the value goes. And my point is is that um, the cost is baked in to the existing value of the dollar and the fact that it's worth less today than it is tomorrow, and it's a, it's a hidden tax on society by increasing the money supply. And devaluing money today. So it's an easier alternative. It would be suicide for a politician to say, let's increase taxes to account for that $10. Instead, let's devalue the money that everybody has by expanding the money supply. And to me, that's the other side of the equation that she's forgetting. And she's kind of making it sound like, well, 
this is just something that they can do indefinitely. And and by the way, over the last 40 years or whatever, we haven't really seen the runaway inflation that everybody talks about. But that's that's a separate issue. We can uh, talk about that. Uh, but I think I'm going back to the same place. So if I owe you $100, right, and then the Treasury prints another trillion dollars, do you feel like I owe you $100.50 because there's more money in existence? No. Why not? If you think it's diluting the money supply. So uh, there is some different side effects to that, right? So if if uh, if people know that money is going to be devalued uh, because we know that we're in a period of inflation, and let's just take the politics out of it, we know that inflation happens during times of war because we need to pay for that stuff to some extent. You know, like if we if we uh, if President Bush was like, hey, we're going to Afghanistan, we're going to get this guy. And by the way, we need to increase taxes by 5% in order to get this. <laughs> hey, people would probably literally come out after him with pitchforks, no pun intended, right? As an alternative, he can say, we're just going to leave things the way they are, and we're going to just print the money for the war, and it's no big deal. Um, we're going to expand the money supply. Keep in mind that that used to be called inflation in and of itself for a reason. <laughs> so they are pumping money into society. And and there's, it, it's really hard for me to come up with the economic argument for this off the top of my head because I'm not an expert. But um, if you are expanding the money supply, but not increasing the supply of goods and services, then prices do go up. Uh, there's, yeah, that's, there's that's no, inflation. That's that, what we need to worry about. And that's the current definition of inflation that we need to worry about. But it is something that the government controls today, and they want it on the positive side all the time. And what yeah. they're always closely looking at is it is it close, you know, like 2% or whatever they think is yeah. whatever ideal is. Right. Um, but then you get into situations, and I think that things like the COVID-19, the pandemic, was the storm that economists did actually warn about. Because you had the government printing money to give it out or whatever to get people um, the aid that they needed. But the other side of the equation is the supply of the goods and services. And um, there's a term called stagflation that represents what's happening today. Normally, if we had a society that was free, an economist would say that if we had goods and services that were raising prices and value or the prices were going up and up and up, uh, there has to be some sort of reset that comes in society um, because they can't go up indefinitely without some pushback to equalize uh, the prices of any goods and services. People, if prices are going up, but people get laid off and they can't work, prices have to come back down or they won't be able to sell anything. If you combine that same concept uh, with uh, raising the raising prices of goods and services with an increased money supply that the government gives, there's no reason for companies to auto or self-correct, people the the price of goods and services keep going up, and the prices the the money supply is actually going being infused into the economy, and somebody somewhere is buying those goods and services so that they don't have to auto correct in the prices, which really makes people that are lower income suffer the most because they're not the bank owners or whatever that's getting the the payout, you know, from printing, or they're not. They're not uh, Boeing or they're not um, Lockheed Martin that has these 
uh, a major contract from the government with the major inflow of cash that's coming out. So I guess my point is, is that stagflation comes when inflation is paired with a decrease in the supply of goods and services. Whereas in a society that didn't have the inflation, uh, people would get laid off, right? But there would be a counterbalance because they're getting laid off. They There's not money there to pay those old prices. And therefore, the prices have to go down or else they're just not going to sell. And this does actually have historical context. Throughout the first major part or throughout most of the United States history, it, we actually went through periods where everything – prices everywhere were going down, which is deflation, right? Because we, we figure out how to do things more efficiently. We can produce the same amount for less costs. Um, even the subway in New York, you know, when it was privately owned, it went through decades and decades of never needing to raise the fares a single, a single cent, right? So then, you know, the 30s come along and then all of a sudden we, we seem to have in constant levels of inflation, uh, if we go the other direction and we have constant levels of deflation, that's really good for poor people, right? Because that means that the wages that they're making yesterday are worth more tomorrow than they were today. It's the opposite. And now they can buy more. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that deflation is good for anybody. Well, see, and that's what everybody always says. I don't even understand it. I don't even know why. I, I think that's a political statement as well. I, I've never seen an economist say – so. So I, I thought like if you could have inflation or deflation, what you want is mild inflation. That's my understanding because what you want is people to say, oh, okay, if I sit on money, it's losing value slowly. So prices are fairly stable, but I'm losing money by sitting on money. Therefore, I shouldn't sit on money. I should go out in the economy and do things with it. I should hire people. I should buy a couch. I should buy a car, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I should spend the money because the money circulating is what's good for the economy, right? But in deflation, if all the prices are going down for everything, it just incentivizes me to not buy anything today. Don't buy. Just sit on my money. Sit on my money. Sit on my money, right? Because mm -hmm. everything's going to be cheaper next week if I just wait. So why would I buy it today? I can buy it next week for less money. And that's like the death knell for for uh, a currency is my understanding of the the basic economic theory that you want mild inflationary currency. I don't think that there's actually an economic theory that supports that. I think that's another political explanation that politicians try to convince us of. Oh, well, I don't know what's political and what's economic. All I know yeah. is that's the only way it's been explained to me. <laughs> I've never found a good explanation economic that just Well, isn't that it. a good explanation? Like I don't think so. Personally. Here's what I'm saying is you don't want deflation because if if the prices of everything are going down, I'll just wait and I won't spend any money and then the whole economy suffers. Isn't that a theory? That is that is a uh, a, a good theory. I would I would question whether or not uh people would not buy in those situations. I would I would think that people would still want to invest money. They would still want to they still have their needs and their wants. Uh and uh, as a side note, you know, there still are goods and services in this country that even in spite of all the inflation that we try to do, the prices still go down, right? You know, a lot of consumer electronics, at least until recently, have gone trended down in price and not up. Not uh, graphics cards. <laughs> I know, right? But that's uh, that's uh, not microphones. Apparently, you just spent a billion dollars on that mic. 
It's a billion dollars. <laughs> Maybe with inflation because of Biden, but <laughs> well, let me let me so I, I don't really understand the stagflation stuff that, that you were talking about. And that's my pitch for you want mild inflation. Like if you could choose, mild inflation seems like the best situation to me. So I don't know if that's political or economic theory. I don't know. You you can tell me, but it seems like the right thing to want, right? Because in a deflationary economy, yeah, I'm going to buy food this week because I have to buy food every week. Mm -hmm. But any investment, if it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time, I'm going to put that decision off as long as I can. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. That sounds bad for an economy because you have everybody sitting around staring at each other. What is So I have to make this joke every week. 340 million of us. <laughs> is that the right number? Did I get it right? Yeah. <laughs> we like, we passed around the Census Bureau information last week. 329, I think is what you said. Yeah, 329, but there was, there was undercounting and overcounting, but it all washed out to 340 or something. I don't remember. Anyway, so I, you know, I, I'm saying that you want mild inflation. That, that strikes me as the, the way that you would want it to be, right? But maybe, maybe because if everyone is incentivized, to not spend, right? Because everything's going to get cheaper if they just wait. That's bad because everyone starts going out of business because nobody's spending any money, right? Like you want mild inflation, don't you? Like, oh, yeah, I should buy it now because it's going to get more expensive in the future. I, I don't see any historical evidence for that being historically true or ever being proven. Oh, I don't I, I, don't, I don't know. I uh by all means, I mean, if you find something on that, no, all I, I have is what I just said as a yeah. as a logical as a yeah. thought experiment yeah. that makes sense to me. Yeah, but I have no backing of any kind, right, for that. So, so uh, my thought whatever. is is that people. <laughs> so, I I think that we we give too much uh, maybe credit to kind of these. Uh, I, I guess e even if that was an economic principle, I would say it's a very abstract economic principle that I've never really heard being proven before. That being said, I think that sometimes we give stuff like that um, too much. Um, I don't know if credit is the right word, but uh, I, I do know that my, uh, my aunt, I, I told her one time that uh, we needed to have gas prices come down and she was like, Oh, we don't need gas prices to come down because that would be deflation. It would be bad. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I don't understand why decreasing prices, um, hurts us. Um, I think that she kind of said some of the same points that you did. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, through, like I said before, most of us history has been, uh, deflationary periods where the services and goods that people depend on have by and large become cheaper and available to more people. Well, and hopefully that's through competition, right? People come out with better and better, better products and they have to cut their prices to compete with each other. And that's free market. Right. working right is that if i can mow the lawn better than the next guy and i'm going to charge less then i get their business and the price comes down for the consumer and that's good for everybody yeah so uh i, I did actually have a whole page on that concept that you just talked about i don't want to bore people to death but <laughs> when um so well, can we back to two things because i th we keep not finishing things i think oh yeah so, so one, one thing i think that we didn't get back to is if you if I owe you a hundred dollars, right, mm -hmm. and then Putin starts a war or Biden starts a war or whatever, and they're like, "Oh fuck! All right, we're gonna print ten 
trillion dollars to pay for this war, right? Mm-hmm. How much money do I owe you now? Is this a friendly arrangement? Uh, whatever. If it's a friendly arrangement, I'd say you just owe me what I borrowed you. Okay, so say you hate me. Say you hate my guts and I owed you $100 and now Biden prints $10 trillion. Let's say uh, – maybe let's make it a little bit more realistic. Let's say I'm a piece of shit Wells Fargo company <laughs> and I predict that um, – uh, through all the analysts that we pay millions and millions of dollars to, that inflation is going to be whatever percentage. I have to account for that in the interest rate that I charge because the the bank itself doesn't want to lose money. So if we're talking about official money-making processes, I would say that you can't retroactively go back and say, well, inflation was more than what we expected, therefore you owe us more money. But I do think that inflation is taken into account when loans are given. If that answers your question, I don't know if it does or not. My point is, is that you, we can't go back and say, well, we're changing the terms because somebody screwed us and now every dollar is only worth 50 cents now. Therefore, you owe me twice as much. Legally, they can't do that. Uh, but what they can say is, is that, well, we know that inflation is going to cut the value of the dollar in half. Therefore, instead of everybody that we charge money to interest wise, we, we can't do the 2.9% interest rate anymore. We're going to have to do the, I don't know, 2.35 or whatever to make up for the difference, whatever the case may be. But you see my point. I don't think the banks are that sophisticated. What what happens is the, the Fed rate, because the bank just borrows the money from the Fed, and the Fed rate is 0.05. And so Wells Fargo ch- charges 2.3, and they keep the 1.7, and that's it. Right, and that is how they just, they just turn around and they, they they're not actually loaning you the money. <laughs> the Fed's loaning you the money. Oh, I know, and I know that's how it works, and I think that's actually how <laughs> they actually increase the money supply by ch- the Fed's ch- changing the interest rate. Right, yeah. by saying, "Well, we're going to lower the interest rate." That means they can just literally print more money, and the banks can make more money by just adding tacking money onto the top of that. Right. Um, I guess my point is is that. The way things are set up right now, it's a compound problem that we're trying to just look at one side of it, which is inflation, right? So so I don't know if MMT is saying this or not, but I'm pretty sure in the John Stewart version of this that they were. What they're saying is it doesn't matter how many U.S. dollars exist. What matters is how many U.S. dollars are chasing goods and services in the actual economy on the ground. And if the answer is there's too many – U.S. dollars, then the sellers of those goods and services are going to start raising their prices because the demand is so high that they run out of supply and they can raise their prices and still have customers. And that's where inflation comes from. So when you have too many U.S. dollars chasing um, goods and services in the actual economy, that becomes a problem. That causes inflation, and that's that's where the system breaks. Yeah, But whether a trillion U.S. dollars exist or whether a hundred trillion U.S. dollars exist or a hundred quadrillion U.S. dollars exist doesn't matter, I think is what MMT theory says. Right. Because all that money is locked up in fucking accounts sitting in spreadsheets somewhere, not (laughs) doing anything in the real economy and not causing inflation. Right. So I guess – what I would say is is that if you look at it like it's a loan, I would agree that just the just the value itself isn't what's it's important. It's it's how the money is being spent. I would technically agree with that. However, I don't think that that's the case, and I think that we're trying 
the argument itself tries to ignore the other side of the equation is where does that value come from? So there, one thing as far as the United States is concerned is that we've had the benefit of is that I don't think it's necessary. I think it's an oversimplification to say inflation doesn't happen as long as there's goods and services to spend money on, right? I think that that's an extreme oversimplification. And I think that the reason why that's the case is because in the United States, we have this uh, elevated level of security that prevents inflation, not because goods and services are being bought by people in America, but because there's an actual demand for the dollar itself. And uh, I actually have personal experiences from this in two ways. First, when I was in Afghanistan, um, the government had already diluted the shit out of their currency to where even though we were there in their country, they would rather have a U.S. dollar than Afghanistan currency, which is pretty telling, right? There's a lot of countries where that's true. Right. There's also a lot of financial standards that are based upon the dollar, which also increases the demand for the dollar. And and there's a lot of things that, that we could really talk about here. And I think this is really where it gets somewhat interesting to me, but people's eyes glass over when I start to talk about it because it's like <laughs> and this is what I worry about this this subject material is that my problem with MMT in general is that it has oversimplified complex subjects to oblivion to where you can't really think about it in a good logical organized way and it almost seems like the concepts and the principles of what's being debated um doesn't really have any meaning in the context of MMT uh, that that can be everything from what actually makes a, pro, a a society prosperous to what gives money its value to what inflation is and what it means and what causes it and who pays the cost and the burden for all that stuff um, are essentially uh, unmentioned uh, and not accounted for in in modern monetary theory. Well, you're, that you're just basing that on an hour long podcast where they're just trying to summarize it. Oh, no. I, actually, this is me actually just talking about the concepts and principles that it's rooted in that I kind of just did through side stuff, which they do say in here, um, which is um, the concept that you can't apply to the government what you can apply to an individual. Yeah. And and theoretically, to me, there's no magical transition between the two to where uh, the no free lunch only applies to individuals, but it doesn't somehow apply to the government is the part of the equation that I think is missing from MMT. Oh, I th yeah. yeah. And I think when you're fiat currency, <laughs> when you're, Wait. when you're a sovereign nation that is, there's 330 million of us that, get there, right? that are paying <laughs> taxes, right? Under threat of force, right? We'll go to prison. We'll go, you know, whatever, if we don't pay taxes, right? So mm -hmm. we're like trapped in U.S. dollars, as mm -hmm. employees, not right. not a hundred, you know, I'm exaggerating a little, but generally speaking, the 330 million people are trapped in U.S. dollars. We get paid in U.S. dollars, we get taxed in U.S. dollars, you know, et cetera. The <laughs> the fuckery you can do, <laughs> good word, in Washington D.C. I think is pretty extreme, and it is magic, and they can do whatever the fuck they want, and they have been, right? Mm -hmm. And then people label it. Politically, one thing or another thing, depending on whether or not they like the politics of what things happen. Yeah. But yeah, I think you and I live in a very constrained no free lunch kind of universe because we can't print the fiat. 
Right. And I think as the national government, where there's 8 billion people running around in the world and it's the world's reserve currency, and you're like, you know, number one on the block as far as like people will just safe harbor with you. Like buying U.S. savings bond is like the safest thing on the planet, right? If your local currency is in turmoil or you think the Chinese government is about to fuck up all the U.N. and mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like we have the reason Chinese citizens have billions of dollars of our debt yeah. <laughs> is because they trust the U.S. dollar more than they – and that might not always be – well, that won't always be true. Like right. every empire falls, but – um yeah, no, I think there is magic. I think you can have free lunches, and I think they do have free lunches. And my reading of MMT, not that I've read it, I've just, you know, I spent two hours listening to people talk about it, is that they're just trying to describe, here's what's actually happening in the in the economy. And we can make different choices if we choose to, and we probably should. Oh, right. And I think the and like I said, the, the thing that I think that they're missing is that it appears that there's a free lunch, but what they what we're just failing to do is recognizing what the costs are, right? The lunch isn't free. There's cost, but we're just ignoring them is all is my, well, point. I think we're pushing them to our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids. And, and, and we are, and we're and also we're really fucking future generations. Then, you know, inflation <laughs> in and of itself, what I mean by inflation in this case is the expansion of the money supply um, is a tax on current savings that is hidden and well, it, and people don't have to account for yeah so so i don't i don't think it necessarily matters if 100 trillion us dollars exist or 100 quadrillion us dollars exist or whatever if if that money isn't in the real economy buying the goods and services then i don't see how that has any impact yeah on inflation well that's a that's this whole page right here but I, I would imagine that uh, since it's like an hour and 37 minutes that you don't want to hear me talk about this page. <laughs> At the end of the day, I don't – I was expecting more fireworks, Chris, because when, when we first talked about this episode, you were so fired up and you were worried you were going to get too upset on the podcast. And you haven't even raised your voice on this podcast. Oh, oh I, have to, I have to contain myself. But the point is <laughs> – I wanted a little bit of fireworks. I was not Give necessarily – Give me a sparkler or I, something. I was not worried about myself. Oh. I was worried about how I would come across as a know-it-all, oh, uh, you're just a Debbie Downer, whatever you want to call Like, you're just like the party of no, <laughs> like, or, or, or like, so, and, you know, I stand by this. One of the first people, uh, one of the first quotes that I said that are read once about economics was that it's, um, oh, I can't think of the word now. It's, it's the dull science, uh, but that's not the right word. But anyways, anytime – Oh, yeah. I've heard that. But I don't um, remember what it was. The banal science or something like that. So what it was was this guy that was trying to use economics to justify reintroducing slavery. And through an economic analysis, all I kept finding was that it would be worse for society to introduce slavery. And he was getting upset because his plans were getting ruined. My point is, is that – the. Uh, humdrum economics sounds really preachy and it sounds really prosecutorial or prosecutorial. Um, and I, I don't want to sound like that. I don't want to sound like the data bully that's just trying to correct misconceptions all the time. Uh, but that's what I was worried that I would be like. Economics, the dismal science. Dismal science, that's right. As a term coin coined by a Scottish essayist and historian Thomas Carlyle to describe the discipline of economics. So, sorry, what... Oh, dismal science is said to have been inspired by 
T.R. Malthus's gloomy prediction that population would always grow faster than food, dooming mankind to unending poverty and hardship. But tell me the how, how did who do what with oh, maybe, slavery? He was maybe, trying to do may, what with slavery? Maybe I got that wrong, but there was uh, somebody that called it. The, I thought the one that coined the dismal science was trying to justify uh, slavery. Hold on. I, I might have to look that up. I'm kind of at a weird angle. Oh, this angle. Thomas Carlyle guy might have been trying to – Oh, and it's a derogatory term. He didn't actually call it that. It got called that. Is it? Did you say Thomas? Uh, if you Wikipedia the dismal science, there's an article called the dismal science. Oh, originally in the context of his argument to reintroduce slavery in the West Indies. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's like, oh, I want to reintroduce slavery, but I can't do it. I can't justify it through economics. <laughs> the term grew. It's a- drew a contrast with the then familiar use of the phrase gay science to refer to song and verse writing. The latter phrase later appeared as the title of a book by Frederick Nietzsche, the gay science. Some modern synonyms include the term, the miserable science. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think that if you really look at economics, it it, it kind of puts a can (laughs) on the ability to just get this free lunch if if it really was a free lunch, I'd say, yeah, let's do it all the time. I mean, we're just creating something from nothing. I like lunch. Yeah, I know. Uh, and it, it seems like I, I was really just kind of worried about sounding like this pompous turd when really at the end of the day, all I am is like a like a economics enthusiast. It just <laughs> intrigues me, right? So I, I tend to research this stuff a hundred million times more than anybody else because it fascinates me, but just bores people to tears. Do you, you listen know? to Econ Talk, the podcast? I really like that one. Oh, no. So, like, one of the first economics books that actually got my interest in it was not my college textbook where I, I really struggled to get through economics. It was a book called Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. It's this huge book where he talks about uh, uh, basic economic theory. It, it, it's weird how you can take such simple concepts and stretch it into this humongous book right uh, but he actually brought it down to a level to me that helped me to understand it uh, another book that did the same thing which would be in contradiction to mmt on a grand level they probably think it's the satan incarnate book an mmt person would just want to burn the book is <laughs> called uh why uh economy grows and why and how it crashes which is kind of based upon this uh, very simplistic analysis of um, an Islander that you see him progress through economic maturity over time. And then you see the Island and nations kind of progress. And what it does is it takes basic economic theory and applies it to him. And you kind of learn these, the principle of economics on a a ladder step kind of principle by following this these these characters through the book. Hmm. Um, if you could stomach it, it would certainly be some good subject material that you could be like, oh, I hate this. I'd rather do MMT. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I can econ or sorry, not uh, I can audiobook it if yeah. you want. Like if there's a specific book you want me to audiobook. That, yeah, that way I'd consume it way faster than trying to read a physical book, which puts me to sleep all the time. Yeah, well, I would say if you wanted to do an audio book, I would do Why an Economy Grows and How It Grows and How It Crashes. I think it's by Peter D. Schiff or something like that. Um, 
and not basic economics because that book is so exhaustive and it's so huge. I think the <laughs> audio book is like 17 hours long, if I remember right. Whoa, it's a it's a huge book. And Don it's, Quixote, unabridged. It's, what? Oh, I bought Don Quixote and they had an unabridged version. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, the unabridged version. It's like 26 hours. That's crazy. Of Don I Quixote. I liked the movie. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the is movie that... in the 70s was great. With what's his name? Oh, actually, I think I'm going to get mixed up with something. I'm thinking the Count of Monte Crisco. Oh, never mind then. Crisco. Crisco. Crisco, yeah. But anyways, <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't get all riled up. I, I, I do actively like try to be respectful of others and not say, oh, yeah, I think you're stupid or you need to learn more. I, what, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of mastering that in my life. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wasn't really worried about me like getting red in the head like a dick on a dog or anything. I was more worried about <laughs> being preachy and like, oh. I'm not All right. Well, you that. failed to be preachy or any of the things you were worried about <laughs> as far as I can tell. So, <laughs> All right. Are we wrapping up then? Oh, I suppose so. We probably should, I imagine. All right. I, I, did I even do an intro? I don't even remember uh, doing an intro. I can't remember. You have been listening to what episode number was this? Oh, boy. Wasn't it like 34 or something? Do, uh, do, do. You have been listening to episode 34 of Jay Flons' Ignorance, the <laughs> podcast. Tune in next week for episode 35 when we will uh, talk about something else <laughs> Jay knows nothing about or not. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. <laughs> Bye.